You're listening to The Murder in My Family, brought to you by Abject Entertainment. Be sure to check out some of the other great true crime podcasts from this network, including Missing Persons, DNA ID, Scene of the Crime, Zodiac Speaking, Beyond Bizarre True Crime, Citizen Detective, and Campus Killings. All of these podcasts are available for you to binge on right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe where you're listening to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. The views and opinions expressed by guests on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the podcast, its host, or sponsors. If you would like to discuss the murder in your family on this podcast, please be sure to visit themurderinmyfamily.com for more information. You can support this podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash the murder in my family. This episode may contain unsettling material or subject matter. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for this episode of The Murder of My Family. I'm your host, Mike Morford. In this episode, we'll be discussing the cold-blooded murder of a successful businessman and World War II veteran who was found shot to death inside the trunk of his car. Despite multiple persons of interest who were very close to him, the case has gone unsolved for four decades. We'll dive into this case after some quick housekeeping. Independent podcasts like this one depend on word of mouth to bring in new listeners. So if you find that you enjoy this show, please take a moment to rate and review it wherever you listen to your podcast, and be sure to introduce a friend to the show and invite them to listen. With your help, the murder of my family can continue to grow and reach a new audience. To learn more about the show or the cases we discuss, please visit themurderofmyfamily.com. You can also find us on Twitter with the handle at MurderMyFam, or on Facebook at facebook.com slash T-M-I-M-F podcast. If you'd like to support this show through a Patreon donation, it's always appreciated, and you can do so by visiting patreon.com slash themurdermyfamily. Benefits of supporting the show on Patreon may include early access to ad-free episodes of the show, plus bonus content not heard in regular episodes. Support may also include thank you cards, stickers, and more. In each episode, I'll give shout-outs to any new supporters, and thank you to all of the supporters that generously donate to help keep the show growing and improving. One last note, please support any of the sponsors that you hear on The Murder of My Family, the way that those sponsors support the show. It's with our sponsor support that this show can go on and continue to provide a platform to share these stories with you in every episode. Thank you, and now on with the show. Thomas R. Clancy Sr. was born in 1923 in Split Rock, New York, to parents Lawrence and Helen, and he was one of 14 children. As an adult, Thomas married his wife, Jane Carson, in October 1943. They welcomed their first child, a son, in July 1944, but sadly, he passed away the same day he was born. But Thomas and Jane went on to have 11 more children together. One of them, Barbara, is my guest in this episode. Thomas was a proud and distinguished World War II veteran, earning the Flying Cross and a Purple Heart. He survived two plane crashes while piloting B-17s during the war. Following the war, Thomas remained in the military as an Air Force Reserve and rose to the rank of Lieutenant Colonel, but he also dove into a career that would allow him to take advantage of his ability to talk with people and listen to them, jumping into sales. He then went into the insurance industry and did well. 
The Clancy family wound up settling in Dallas, Texas in 1966. While in Dallas, Thomas bought a business from his brother, the Salvage Center of Dallas, and Thomas ran it for 15 years before selling the business to his sons and then buying an insurance agency. In 1979, after over 35 years and 12 children together, Thomas and Jane divorced. They just found themselves to be different people by this point. Two years later, 1981, Thomas remarried to his second wife, Jonath. In the little downtime Thomas had, he loved to fly and renewed his pilot's license in order to teach his oldest grandson how to fly. But two years into his marriage with Jonath, things weren't going well. The couple argued. She accused Thomas of having an affair. In 1983, Thomas Clancy's life came to a violent end, and just who is responsible for it remains a mystery to this day. On November 15th of that year, Thomas's daughter Barbara reported him missing to the Dallas Police Department. He hadn't been seen since the 11th. That's when he visited one of his daughters, Margie, who was very sick in the hospital, and there was a chance that she wouldn't survive. Thomas left the hospital after visiting hours ended on the 11th. When he didn't show up to visit with her again, that's when his family became worried. Thomas's assistant, Sandy Mounts, reported that she saw him and spent time with Thomas after he left the hospital. The two had gone to Clancy's Saloon on Industrial Boulevard. The saloon was the bar inside the Marriott near the Clancy family business, the Salvage Center. It was a bar that Thomas often went to, because the bar shared his last name, and he thought that was funny. At around 9.30 on the 11th, Thomas and Sandy were leaving Clancy's when Thomas's wife, Jonath, confronted them. She accused the two of having an affair, and she threatened to kill Sandy. Thomas grabbed Jonath and held her so that Sandy could leave. While Sandy was driving away, Jonath scratched Thomas on his face, and she jumped in her car trying to drive away, but she smashed into Thomas's car on the way out. At 10.40 p.m., Thomas used a payphone to check on Sandy. He told Sandy that after she left, Jonathan had scratched his face and hit his car. Fearing that the weekend might contain a lot of drama that might spill over into the work week, Thomas told Sandy not to come into work on Monday and instead wait to hear from him. According to Jonathan, she and Thomas both drove home that night. Later at home, they argued more, but Jonathan said she agreed to take Thomas to the hospital the next morning to see his daughter, since his car was damaged from Jonathan hitting it, Thomas didn't want to drive it, according to Jonathan. On the way to the hospital, the couple argued again, becoming more heated, and according to Jonathan, she dropped him off at a gas station. She said that Thomas came home that night, but she doesn't know who drove him home. According to Jonathan, at around 1 a.m. on the morning of the 12th, Thomas left the home again, and this time drove off in his damaged Cadillac, but Jonathan said she didn't know if he was alone or where he went to. Later that morning, November 12th, Barbara called her dad to discuss last rites for Margie in case she passed away in the hospital. No one answered his home or his insurance office, so she called the salvage center. After just one ring, her brother Jimmy answered the phone. She remembered him sounding gruff and loud, like he knew someone would be calling. According to Barbara, it wasn't like Jimmy or their brother Tommy, who was also at the shop, to be there that early. But at the time, she didn't think much of it. During visiting hours at the hospital, when Thomas didn't show up to see Margie, Barbara and her sisters began to worry. They drove his regular routes and checked airports and hospitals, but three people who didn't want to help search for Thomas were his wife, Jonathan, and his two sons, Jimmy and Tommy. Jonathan informed his worried daughters that Thomas had been cheating on her, 
and she wasn't going to search for him. And Jimmy and Tommy told them, and Jimmy and Tommy told them that they were overreacting and not to worry. By the 15th, with no sign of their father, Barbara refused to wait any longer. She filed a missing persons report. She was dismayed to learn that she didn't have to wait that long, according to her discussions with police. She thought that since Thomas was an adult, that she had to wait 48 hours to report him missing, and she was upset that she hadn't reported him missing even sooner. That same day, the family visited Jimmy's wife at the hospital. She had given birth to Jimmy's first child, but he didn't seem as happy as you might expect a proud new father to be. According to Barbara, he had been thrilled about becoming a father, but following the birth, he seemed dejected. That afternoon, Tommy claimed he was driving around and spotted his father's missing Cadillac in the parking lot of the Anatoo Hotel, just blocks from the salvage center and across the street from Clancy's bar. According to Tommy, the car was locked, so he went to his father's house to get the spare keys from Jonathan. On the way back to the Cadillac, he picked up a friend. Around 9.25 p.m., it was Tommy's friend who popped the trunk while Tommy sat in the driver's seat, fiddling with the rearview mirror. He made a gruesome discovery. Thomas Clancy Sr.'s lifeless body was inside the trunk, lying on spread-out newspapers. Police were called to investigate the scene. Thomas had been shot once in the back of the head. The bullet exited his skull and was never recovered. A leg brace belonging to Jonathan was found in the trunk behind his body. He was wearing boxer shorts and socks, which is what he normally wore to sleep in at night. His Rolex, his wallet, a gold ID bracelet, and a ring so tight he never took it off were all missing. There was blood, hair, and plant matter under Thomas's fingernails. There were possible foreign fibers on his hands and his back. His hands tested negative for gunshot residue. A toxicology screening showed no drugs or alcohol in Thomas's system. They found that the newspapers were from October and November 1983, with the most recent edition, the November 11th issue. The Anato Hotel had no record of Thomas Clancy checking in or booking any rooms. According to the police report, it's believed that Clancy was shot somewhere else and later moved to the hotel parking lot. The tires of the car seemed muddy, but with a clay or sandy type of dirt, and there were sandy debris on the back of the bumper. Tommy's palm print was found on the outside of the trunk lid, and he claimed that he had tried to bounce the car to see if there was anything in the trunk. He also told police other areas of the car that he touched, areas inside the car, ones that you would touch if you had driven the car, perhaps. A police report in this case reads, in part, Clancy was killed by someone he loved, son, wife, possible suspects. Tommy gave multiple ever-changing stories about the last time he saw his dad, and how he was spending his time the night of the murder. He also gave a fake address to officers investigating the scene, and showed many signs of cooperating with Jonathan and stalling the search for his father. He also happened to own a cabin in Lake Tawakoni, which had the type of sandy clayish mud that officers noted on the Cadillac. Barbara and her sisters began to fear the worst, that one or more people that were close to her father may have played a role in his death. In hindsight, troubling things jumped out to her, Barbara realized that the phone number attached to reward posters in Thomas's case that requested information from the public was the phone number for one of her brothers, and that any tip that came in could have simply been kept to himself if that brother was involved in the murder. She also recalled that when they were at Jonas trying to figure out what happened to their father, one of the brothers laid a handgun down on a table in the home before they were leaving. Barbara picked it up and brought it out to him and asked why he had left it there. According to Barbara, 
he seemed angry that she had brought it out to him. Jonathan, Tommy, and Jimmy were clearly persons of interest in the murder, and all had apparent motives. The marriage between Thomas and Jonathan was on the rocks, and a divorce was imminent. According to witnesses, she was jealous and prone to rage, and she had fought with her husband prior to his murder. Jonathan was removed from the salvage center payroll about two weeks before Thomas's murder, and she was the sole beneficiary in his will, and that reportedly came as a shock to Tommy and Jimmy when they found that out. And as for Tommy and Jimmy, according to Barbara, they still owe their father money from their purchase of the salvage yard. Is it possible that something in that transaction led to the murder of their father? Their actions and demeanor during the time their dad was missing and after he was found dead only raised more suspicion. And after all, it was one of them that somehow was the one to find Thomas's car with his body inside it. Although Jonathan, Jimmy, and Tommy looked to be the top persons of interest in the murder, there was no clear evidence, and the case cooled off. In 1990, Tommy's wife answered a call from a pawn shop in Florida regarding his father Thomas Clancy's missing Rolex. Tommy didn't tell the police or any of his other family members about this call, and it's not clear what this call was about or if police ever checked it out. There's been no real movement in this case since 1983. In the early 2000s, the Dallas Police Department refused to allow the esteemed Vidoc Society to review the case, but did open the files to the Texas Rangers Unsolved Crimes Investigation Team. Barbara feels there's a disconnect with police investigating her dad's murder. She feels that more could have been done. Tommy and Jonathan have both passed away, but Jimmy's still alive. And we need to point out here that everyone mentioned as suspects or persons of interest in this episode have not been charged with any crimes related to the murder of Thomas Clancy and are all considered innocent until proven guilty. Anyone with information about the murder of Thomas Clancy is asked to contact Detective Christopher Evans by email at christopher.evans at dallaspolice.gov or by calling him at 214-671-4743. Please refer to case number 531390-P. Now in her mid-70s, 40 years after the murder of her father, Barbara finds herself almost alone in the quest for answers in her dad's case. She refuses to give up on getting justice for her father, despite the odds after so long being stacked against her. She started the website thomasclancycoldcase.com. Most of Barbara's siblings have passed away, and she's now been without her father for longer than she had him in her life. And she herself is older than Thomas was when he died, so it really puts into perspective. That's a long time to be without someone you love, all the while wondering who took them from you and why. I sat down to talk to Barbara about not just her father's puzzling unsolved murder, but about the rich life he lived. That conversation is coming up in just a moment. Hi, Barbara. Thank you for coming on the show to discuss your father Thomas's case with us. Hi, Mike. Thank you for the opportunity. Well, I'm, I'm happy to have you here. I know you're trying to get answers in your dad's case after 40 years, and we're going to try and help spread the word. One of the things I did to prep for this conversation is I read some background on, on your dad's case from uh, the site that I think is a newer site, if I'm not mistaken, the thomasclancycoldcase.com. Yes. And you have the, the details of what happened to your father. Obviously, the, the mystery is sort of interesting as to what happened to him, but uh, you know, I think also just as interesting is your dad's life. It seems like he had one of those lives where he did a full 
you know, from, from family to his careers to other careers, seems like he was a, a busy person and, and led an interesting life. So before we get into the details of, of what happened surrounding his death, can you tell us a little bit about him and his life and what you remember of him? Oh, <laughs> yes, I, I, I can. My, um, my, my dad was just a genuinely good person. And I think that's because of his background. He was, he was one of 14 children, um, born in, and in poverty, you know, an outhouse out back, uh, and raised during the depression. And, and he did succeed by the time he was murdered. He, he was a successful businessman. So, uh, but his life had been, had been, I think, shaped a lot because he qualified to become a pilot during World War II. And, um, and he, and he was probably born to be a pilot. He was precise and measured. He, he was the kind of person you want around if there's a, an emergency or a problem. Um, and I know that, that the, his, his crew, was they always spoke very highly of him in fact they still get got together until recently when the last one died uh and they were called clancy's crew so he flew i think it was almost 40 bombing missions his plane crashed twice because of flak uh but he he wanted to to be the best pilot he could be, and and he was. He got the distinguished flying cross, and he um, only the best pilots could fly the planes home after the war was over. And uh, he said he was. He got so seasick, he, he had to become a great pilot because he had to fly his plane home, <laughs> and he did. And he married my mom just before the war, um, and they had a. They had their first child died. He went on to have 11 more children, but I, I think that shaped part of his life too. I remember my mom saying they'd gone out to at Christmas time and, and found kids that were looking in the store windows and he bought the toys uh, that they wanted. He, he was just a, he was a generous good man. So, and you mentioned you had the big family hit. One of your siblings passed away, but then also um, you had a, eleven more siblings. That was yes. probably quite a hectic uh, household. It was, <laughs> it was, and it, and I will say there were. So I had seven sisters, so there were eight girls, and then there were three more brothers. So it was, and and we always joke because there was only one bathroom. Uh, <laughs> wow. So we all, we all had to get along. <laughs> wow. And, you know, so you got this big family, your dad's got the military career, and then he decides, okay, I'm going to do a different career, but I still want to be in the military. I'm going to be in the reserves. So he stayed in the reserves and became a lieutenant colonel. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. Okay. And then, so he keeps on going and has another career on top of that. What did he do next? Some kind of sales job? Well, he, yeah, he, when he, he left the Air Force, um, uh, I guess it was the Air Corps back then. Um, and when he left, he became a salesman. I, uh, at first he sold, sold bread. Uh, he sold, then 
he he sold insurance and he was he was that kind of person that could be very successful selling insurance because because he was just he never met a stranger. He was just kind of born to be a, uh, he went out and he, he talked to anybody. He was just so, um, I will say, reserved, but outgoing. And and people just really liked him. So he was a good salesman. But we were living in upstate New York. And in 1966, uh, the the ice and snow got to him. Uh, he had, he'd slipped on our front porch several times, and uh, he wound up moving to Dallas. He, he he his brother owned a railroad salvage store there, and he his brother wanted to sell it, so my dad bought it from him, and and ran that for fifteen years. And then, so he, after that, he sold that business and then continued with the insurance uh, business. Yeah, he he got out of that business. It was a it was a family business, and there were issues, and and so he sold it to his sons, and then he he went back into the insurance business. He had been successful at that, and and knew he could be again. Oh, so he he really kept busy. He kept active. He's you know has these nice careers going on family man everything's looking good um and then all of a sudden this this tragedy happens so and and i wanted to clarify one thing too he remarried or did they divorce and he remarried no, they 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 divorced um okay. and then a guy yeah i know after 12 kids um but it was a uh just they were different people um and they divorced and a couple of years later, he remarried. Okay. So he remarried in 1981. Uh, he's got a new relationship. He's, and then this happens in 1983, this, this tragedy. Um, can you walk us through um, what happened uh, in November, 1983, how this all started? Well, I guess for me, I would start with, it was a, a, a a terrible day. One of my sisters, who had complications of diabetes, had been admitted to the hospital, and they told us she probably wasn't going to make it. Um, and so, some of us were there visiting until they they made us leave. And um, and my dad was there. In fact, he walked me to my car, and then. The next morning, um, I remembered that my sister would would want the last rites. She would want a priest. So I called my dad real early, uh, like, like earlier than I would ever ordinarily call. And there was no answer at his home. Um, and that was just so unusual because he, he he always answered so i called i called every place i could think of but he, we never we never could locate him um and he had told me he'd visited me a, a couple weeks before that and had told me that he was getting divorced from his second wife uh that that she things had not worked out and he was he was kind of man who who always thought he could control you know, 
any situation. He he was he, but he had said that, that, that there'd been some guns out was the phrase he used at his home, um, and so you know, of course, I I I thought he should move out, and he said no, he uh, he wanted his wife to move out. Um, so my sisters and I started looking for our dad right away. Uh, by the, by the second day, it was clear something was wrong. He would never leave my sister in the hospital so sick and not show up. Uh, that, that was impossible. So my sisters and I did a, a lot of things. He had just gotten his pilot license back. So one sister went to the airport to check if maybe he, you know, had taken a plane out. Uh, another sister drove to, we had called his, his second wife and, and she had said that, that they were fighting. Um, uh, and, and, uh, and so another sister had driven to a gas station that she said she had dropped him off at. And, um, by by Monday, that 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 all started on Friday, and by Monday we still hadn't heard from him. And his administrative assistant called me up, uh, and said she, she came over to my house, and she said they had met uh, the Friday night. Uh, she had met my dad at this bar he used to like to go to because it was called Clancy's Saloon and his name was Clancy. So he he, he would go there. Um, and she said that while they were there, um, and my dad had told me he, he liked this woman, but they weren't having an affair, but his his second wife thought they were and apparently had shown up in the parking lot and threatened my dad and told told him that he she was going to kill not my dad but kill kill the administrative assistant so eventually they all drove home in their cars or i guess i am i'm not sure from what the administrative assistant said uh, my dad called her later that night and just wanted to make sure she had gotten home okay and he told her not to come to work on Monday, unless she had heard from him because his wife was so angry. So that day, uh, Monday then, after I talked to the administrative assistant and learned what had happened, I I wanted to go to my dad's house and, and I, I thought he might be lying dead there. So I called my brothers. They They hadn't been very helpful about helping to look for my dad. They just kept telling us there was you know, he was just, he was just busy. He was just doing, sometimes they said they saw him. Sometimes they said they hadn't, but I, I was scared to go to the house alone. Um, but they kept stalling me off. But eventually we got to my dad's house and it, it was, it was locked. Um, but I went out back to get a brick cause I was going to break a window and, and go in. And, um, then it turned out my my brother who went with me did have a key to the house so we went in the house and i was walking back towards his living room um but i turned around and it was it was kind of odd cuz my brother 
was wrapping up a gun from his car and he brought the gun into my dad's house all wrapped up in a towel or a jacket and and put it on the pool table um that was in the back of their house uh, which which seemed odd but at the time all I wanted to do was find my dad but then my dad's wife showed up uh and I figured we might have set off a silent alarm but I wanted to because I wanted I wanted the police there um and the police did come and they did we did they told us we had to leave uh because my dad's wife didn't want us there although later the police said they did check the house and they had they didn't find any signs of a struggle or a fight in the house uh but they didn't check the house for a, still a few more days anyway i brought the gun back out to my brother cuz i thought he had forgotten it and and he was kind of angry that i brought the gun out um and and again i just didn't think much of it cuz all all my sisters and i were focused on was finding our dad and we were sure that his second wife had killed him um several of the things she said one of my sisters asked her if if oh i think it was my mom called her up and asked her was his toothbrush there and and she said she hadn't looked um and this was several days later and not just several ordinary days several days where my sister who was in the hospital we, we thought she would die um so it was it, it was just very unusual anyway on on that monday i went or monday i went and filed a missing persons report or maybe that was tuesday morning i filed a missing persons report and um and later that day my brother-in-law called my sisters and i were all at my house trying to figure out what what to do next and uh it was on the news that my dad's car was on the news that they had he'd been found in the trunk of his car so i called the police and station. they they didn't not to interrupt you but they didn't even before the news was alerted and the news blurted out they didn't even tell your family that they had found him in his car no no oh no the, the, i don't i don't I, I i think over the years the police go through different stages but at that time that that wasn't uh wasn't a very nurturing kind of family oriented stage that i don't think they would have called us but it turned out my brother had found the car so so even though he hadn't gone looking with with my sisters and i he he said he did go looking on his own and he found he found the car but he'd found it earlier in the afternoon um and hadn't told us so he and, and just to interrupt real quick is this the same brother that left the gun in the house yes yes okay he hadn't told the police that he found the car either he went and got a friend who he said the friend was a deer hunter uh and so if there was if there was something wrong the deer hunter i guess would you know be able to take a bloody scene um but he went and got the friend he went and got his girlfriend he went to his his ex-wife's house he 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 did all of these things before calling us or calling the police um 
So the police eventually that night came to my house where my I my sisters and I we'd all gathered and um and they asked us if my dad had a lake house because apparently his car was covered in mud. So somewhere during the time he was missing, they thought it had been driven to some place very muddy. And my dad was meticulous about his car. He 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 would if his car was covered with mud, he would have washed it if if he had been able to. So that's a, a an important clue there. It's estimated that at any given time, there are 90,000 missing persons, and that's just in the United States. Imagine if your loved one went missing. Is there anything you wouldn't do to try to find them? Our podcast shines a light on just some of these cases. I'm Jess Betancourt. And I'm Mike Morford, and we're the host of the podcast, Missing Persons. In every episode of Missing Persons, you'll hear about someone who disappeared and currently remains missing, and we'll discuss efforts to find out what happened to them. In some cases, there are clues to follow and leads to chase down. In others, though, it's as if the person just vanished off the face of the earth. In each episode, you'll hear from someone who's desperately searching for that missing person. And whether they've been searching for 30 days or 30 years, the struggle to find out what happened is real. There are dozens of episodes to binge on right now, and new episodes drop every other Saturday. Will you join us and become part of the search for answers in these cases? If so, search for and subscribe to Missing Persons wherever you listen to podcasts. So now you've you've had this shocking revelation on the news. You didn't even get told this information by the police. That must have been devastating for all of you to find that out. And then um, you're, you're, I'm sure your heads were sort of spinning as far as, okay, who did this and why now you mentioned that you you had thought you had a a feeling that maybe his wife did something you know they're having problems or getting a divorce but and and correct me if i'm wrong it it sounds like your suspicion maybe shifted a little bit into someone else it it was it, it took about a year to shift um for the in fact after when a year had gone by, we we were we were sure the police would find who killed him. We were, I, I mean, I was positive they would find out that his wife killed him. Um, but but when a year had passed, my sisters and I we all got together again and we decided we would write down everything. So we typed up this big big pamphlet um, of everything that happened and. And why we were suspicious, I, I it, it was funny because years later, when I was so disgusted that the police had done so little follow up, um, uh, of I, I will say for the, so little follow up of what I thought was the right kind, and one of them said, "Oh yeah, we did a lot of work. Look at this," and they pulled out this thing that my sisters and I had typed up, so they hadn't even read it because they thought oh, wow. they had done it <laughs> and really uh really that that wasn't the case but we were that day we were we were all just saying you know we could probably type up one of these on our brothers because one of my other brothers had told me that my dad kept his jewelry and money in a bag buried in a field 
out near his house. And I just discounted it. That that's ludicrous. My my dad, he was a precise, he was a pilot. He was he he might hide his jewelry and money from his then wife if he thought she was going to take them, but he wouldn't bury them in a field. Um, And my brother asked if I would go dig it up with him. And I just, I just thought it was ridiculous. So I I didn't even pay attention because we were so busy with, with other things. Um, But boy, I wish I'd gone (laughs) because sometimes I think Maybe all my brothers did was find his jewelry and keep it. Um, cause another brother told me that he, he did, did I know he, my dad wanted him to have his watch and ring. And, um, that was years later. And I thought maybe they were trying to account for having his jewelry. So, and, and, Correct me if I'm wrong. So it sounds like between you and your sisters, the the your suspicion shifted towards actually to your brothers. Now, um, I, I, I don't the, I don't know. Um, I I still it's forty years later, and I can't answer that question. I'm, uh, it it's as much of a puzzle forty years later as it was that week. Well, and I'm, I am curious. So when did you ask your brother why he left that gun there and why he got angry when you brought it out of the house? Yes. Um, we would ask my brother a lot of things um, uh, because there were so many things that were that were suspicious. And I actually thought he seemed so suspicious that the police would think he did it. So I, I had a talk with him to just, you know, he needed to not tell everybody a different story. He needed to keep his story straight. Um, but my brother was one of those people, <laughs> perhaps born to be a politician. He could talk for 10 minutes and not have answered your question or said a single thing of value. Um, so, so yes, we asked him and we never got anything but what I would consider a typical answer, which never had facts in it Hmm. well and and then you so you have the troubling thing of him leaving a gun in the house being mad that you took it back out of the house and then he's also the same person that finds your dad's car i mean that from an outsider looking in i could see why you would be suspicious of that that does seem pretty suspicious and then you also have his wife they're going through divorce and she's at the bar threatening to kill someone Um, so that's not good either. Now the police, when a case happens like this, the police start with those closest to the victim and they question them and they look at them and then they rule them out from there. How closely did the police look at everyone in the family? Did they question everybody and were they cooperative? No. What happened Um, with that? No, the, the police didn't question everybody. Now there is not a, a chance in the world that they should have questioned my mom, but they had divorced. You would think, you know, that you would think they would at least ask a question. But no, they 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 didn't question everybody. They did, um, they did tell me later. The police they don't share. Um, they don't. They don't. They're 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 
We still don't know. I mean, one of the things I, I, I thought after 40 years, both my dad's second wife and my brother are, are dead. Um, there's, there, there's no reason to keep things secret now. Uh, uh, although, so when, when the police asked my brother if, if my dad had any enemies, um, he had just been with me that day where I accused the, the wife of killing him. Uh, but my brother said, no, he didn't know who could have killed my dad, which, which was, was, was very odd. Um, but he did say that my dad, uh, hung out with prostitutes and the police have told me that some women that they showed my dad's picture to could identify him. So I think the police took off and went that way with it, not realizing that my sister was so sick. I'm not saying my dad never, you know, had extracurricular activities. Yeah, maybe wasn't a perfect person, but. uh, Exactly. But, but, but given the, the, Current circumstances, it seemed unlikely. Um, but I think what my brother had said that day sort of steered them towards that. And my dad was found in his boxer shorts and socks. That, that's what he slept in. Um, but I even saw one of the, the police or one of the newspaper reports at the time. You, you know, they, they report it. Uh, and, and I think perhaps the focus switched to that. So maybe it should have been focused closer to those closest to your dad. Well, um, and, and that's true. My my dad, uh, my my dad's wife, and my brother refused to take polygraphs. Um, but eventually, my sisters and I we got very mad at our brother and told him he had to take a polygraph. Um, and he did. Uh, and he said he failed it, but the police said that he passed it. Um. But my brothers had taken polygraphs before. They had books on how to how to pass polygraphs because the business they were in that family business. And and when things went missing, my dad used to have people take polygraphs. So the police yeah. would not look further. Um, I, I think at that time, if you passed a polygraph, and they said they searched my dad's second wife, well, my dad's house. And they they did tell us that they searched it thoroughly and never found anything that would indicate there'd been a uh, argument there. Hmm. So both of them refusing to take polygraphs, and then your brother eventually did, um, and you know he may or may not have passed. But they're obviously they're not admissible in court, so you know they shouldn't just rely. We shouldn't rely solely on that. Um, but it 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 sounds like they did. It was some years later that one of my sisters had, I mean, we, we all would try when we had the mental energy and stamina, uh, even, even though it's very difficult to deal with the police when they're not talking to you. Uh, they did initially, but then they, they just shut down. Um, and, and, my sister got the Vodok Society. Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of it, but 
Uh, they are a, they're a group of both retired and current investigators, and they volunteer their time, and they only take on cases they are pretty sure they can solve. Um, and they agreed to take on my dad's case at the time they they you know, my sister was very persuasive. Um, now they only go at the invitation of the police. But the 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 Dallas police refused their help. But they did reopen the investigation. They said they'd solve it themselves, but that was 20 years ago. And at, at a different time in there, we'd gone to the district attorney um, who convened a grand jury uh, and both my dad's second wife and my brother's uh, took the Fifth Amendment. Hmm. So, I, you know, I'd, I'd like to talk about, obviously, it seems like there's a, a divorce happening. Uh, the, the, your His second wife was mad about the uh, the other woman she thought your dad was having an affair with. So, I mean, she she almost has a motive, you could say. Yes. What would be your brother's motive? Oh. Uh, this was an uncomfortable situation because my my brothers thought they were in my dad's will, and they still owed him for the family business they had bought. Uh, like it, it was, I, I'm going to say it was like $183,000 they still owed him, but that number could be wrong. Um, and and. So I they were awfully surprised when they found out they weren't in my dad's will. It was it was kind of a shock to them. And the one time they did go with us to talk to the police after my dad had been found murdered, they brought a check with them for for the exact amount they still owed my dad. And um and the check <laughs> did have my dad's signature on it, which was uh, my dad had given one of them a check to have my sister's car fixed. So it, it looked like they filled in the amount that they still owed. And, and so I don't, I, I, I don't know if you asked me, I, the we used to think the idea that they could have worked together was so astonishing. Um, and, and I would say that would never happen. Although the, the police say you can't rule anything out, but but which which would be good. Um, but I I I don't know. Uh, and again, like I know different of my sisters have different feelings about it. But my feeling is they were maybe trying to get his jewelry and money, and and in doing that, maybe inadvertently covered up for his wife who probably did kill him the police said he was found in his car trunk and they said newspapers had been laid down in the car trunk um and his hands were crossed like he'd been one of the maybe it was the medical examiner told us it was like he had been put there with care um and and Instead of just thrown in there, somebody had laid him in there gently and put his hands across, almost like yes. you might have at a funeral, something like that. Yeah. Um, so that's that is, I, th I think, a big clue that there'd be something like that. It does show some kind of care. Um, 
which again could point back to someone that was close to him, a family member. Um, and, and so, you know, it seems like it, it could be possibly your, um, his second wife or even your brother, you know, the, what jumped out to me when you told me about it was, um, the fact that he tried to lay that gun in the house and then got mad when you took it out. I almost got the the vibe that maybe he was trying to plant it there so it would be found there by the police later on. And um and you know that 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 would be my my first impression at the time. I wasn't getting impressions, but but it wasn't hidden. It was right on top of the pool table. Yeah. That's it's interesting. And then, or, you know, could it be a, a case of, like you mentioned, they're somehow working together and she had given them the, that gun and he was putting it back there. Um, just very you know, I, strange all the way around the whole, that whole incident. And we've, my sisters and I have often thought if the police would tell us what they knew, we could tell them what we knew and we would know where the, where the stories are different because we know what we were told and the police know what they were told, but they're at the time they were, it's the police always struck me um, as pretty misogynistic, pretty paternalistic. It was more like, well, well, you know, we will, we'll handle this, which would have been fine if they did, but it's 40 years later. And I have as many questions 40 years later as I had that first year. Did you ever confront, just ask them point blank, either his second wife or your brothers, just say, did you kill my father? Did you ask them point blank? And what did they say? Yes. Um, the, 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 the wife said no. Um, and the police did say that she wasn't strong enough to put him in a, a car trunk. She couldn't have lifted him into the trunk. But over that weekend, he was missing when she said she hadn't even checked to see if he, his toothbrush was gone. Um, over that weekend, uh, she called a friend to come stay with her. So it's possible she called a friend to put him in the car trunk. Yeah, I mean, that, that's possible. And then did, what did your brother say? Did you confront him as well? Um, it, you would you you would have to think of some current politicians to understand that you can ask a direct question and never get an answer and that was the that was that was how um that was how the conversations wow. um with my brother went so instead of just saying no absolutely not i didn't kill my father he would dance around it with a bunch of yeah. stuff to 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 change the subject almost. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so I, you know, the shame of this is your dad's been gone, you know, 40 years, you've had him gone for most of your life, more of your life than you've had him in your life. Um, I'm curious, how has his loss affected you and the rest of your family over this, this last 40 years? Oh, Interesting. I, I I guess we kind of joke that always some people seem to rise to the occasion and some people sink to the occasion. My my sisters, um, most sisters, 
are just such good people. Some of, some of the problems, I guess, because our family is so large, we probably have one, a person who who's dealt with everything in, in a different way. Some sisters don't want to talk about it. Uh, it's like it's like they want to pretend my dad died of a heart attack and and nothing ever happened um, that was unusual. It's a uh, you know some some sisters like my sister who convinced the foot doc society to to intervene although although they didn't get a chance to they just you know they 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 just they just try hard i think i think my son um uh, my dad had recently gotten his pilot license back and he was he was taking my son on plane rides and and trying to you know going to teach him how to fly a plane and my son just the other day said uh said that it, there's there's my dad was such a good man that you learn lessons you don't even know you're learning them but you you you've learned lessons on how to be in your life how to be that person who buys the kids at ice cream trucks their their ice cream you know who who pays the toll for everybody behind them in line how to how to my my dad was he was helping build a church when um when he was killed he used to donate all the all the building materials cuz he had finally gotten to a point in his life where he could do that just he was a honorable and generous man and i think just by default you learn that even when you don't realize you are mm-hmm. that makes sense um uh, so so not having him around uh, you, know, you didn't get to see what other things he might have done and whatever yeah. other things he may have passed on to your grandson and to everybody else's children um oh, so and they've been robbed at that time too yeah and he never met some of his grandkids um uh because many of them were born you had, you had mentioned and he did he had a good life he had a full life he had an interesting life, but he was only 60. He had a lot of life left. Sure, sure. Now, at the end of the day, it's very possible that the person that did this may be dead themselves. But how important is it, how hopeful are you that you'll finally one day have a name? Okay, this is who did it. Would that help provide you with some peace knowing that? Or would it lead to more questions like, why would they do this? Oh, and 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 very possibly, I I I I do have hope. I I wish I didn't. Um, uh, I I know some of my sisters no longer have hope, and I'm sometimes jealous. If you, if you, if you, you know, if you don't have hope, you can't be disappointed. Sure, and that's it's tough to, you know, get that hope up and then have it dashed. So I, I can certainly understand you know why they it's hard to do that um but i you know i'm hopeful that you will get some answers and you know again we'll do our part to help spread the word and and you know the case is unsolved and hopefully people will share it when they listen to this episode thank you i i appreciate what you're doing very much well and i appreciate you uh for coming on and just again reminder for listeners 
go to the thomasclancycoldcase.com website and to learn more about it. Uh, and again, uh, Barbara, thank you so much for coming on to discuss your dad's case with us. Thank you. Thank you once again for joining me for this episode of The Murder of My Family. We'll be back here soon with an all-new episode of and hope you'll join me for it. But before you go, remember that every murder victim means something to somebody.